Welcome to the Dr. J Show, a production of the Ruth Institute. The Ruth Institute is building an interfaith coalition to defend the family. We believe the best for children is mothers and fathers who cooperate in a lifelong union of love, surrounded by a culture that supports these aspirations. You can count on the Ruth Institute to know what they're talking about, and you can count on Dr. J to help you put your faith into action and make a difference. I'm Father Mark Hodges, and here are the headlines. Thinking of moving in? Don't, is the advice of researchers at the Marriage and Religion Research Institute. Their studies prove cohabitation is harmful to marital quality. One scientific study found that couples who cohabit before marriage are significantly more likely to divorce than couples who remain chaste before marrying. Other studies have shown that the reason those who cohabit or have a child before marriage have a higher rate of divorce is those who live together unmarried more often retain individualistic views, have weaker commitment, and poorer problem-solving skills. Couples who live together or have children before they marry also face a host of economic, psychological, and relationship disadvantages. For more information, visit the Marriage and Religion Research Institute at the links below. Psychotherapist, author, and speaker, Dr. Julia Hogan, cites research that may explain why many women who stop taking the pills say they feel, quote, more alive, unquote. She says difficult to describe side effects of hormonal birth control include what women describe as brain fog or not feeling like themselves or feeling emotionally flat. Women who stop taking hormonal birth control feel more alive, more clear, more myself and like a fog had lifted. Even Dr. Sarah Hill, a psychologist who was a woman's health researcher and who described herself feeling like she was living in a black and white drawing while on hormonal birth control for 10 years, when she stopped, she described herself as feeling more vibrant and alive. Hill explained that those who take the pill have lower levels of estrogen and cortisol, which can decrease your brain's ability to absorb details and the richness of an experience. Researchers found that certain contraceptive drugs affect the brain. Studies have found that oral birth control decreases mood, well-being, self-control, energy levels, and ability to focus. Dr. Hogan advocates self-care, which she defines as listening to your physical, emotional, mental, relational, and spiritual needs. Hogan concludes, quote, if hormonal birth control is contributing to a decrease in your overall sense of well-being, your mood, your self-control, and your energy levels, it is affecting your ability to be attuned to yourself. And finally, Ruth Institute President Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse announced a nationwide petition addressed to President Donald Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. It's a bold call to make the family great again. The petition letter reads, President Trump, you campaigned on the promise to make America great again. Your Secretary of State established a commission on unalienable rights for international recognition. We, the undersigned, encourage you and the Secretary of State to make the family great again. Making America great again requires that we make the family great again, both at home and abroad, the petition states. Among the letter's presuppositions is that children need both their mother and their father. 
that stable, loving families provide the basis for strong societies, thriving economies, national security, and international peace. And yet, the United Nations and other international organizations often work at cross-purposes to these important truths. Therefore, the petition continues, we urge global recognition of the fundamental right to life from conception to natural death, the right of families to educate their own children in their faith, tradition, and values without being undermined by the state, the right of every person to know the identity of his or her biological parents, and the right of every child to a relationship with his or her natural mother and father, except, of course, in cases of an unavoidable tragedy. The international petition calls on President Trump and Secretary Pompeo to, quote, use these principles as guides for the United States when dealing with governments and international organizations. Among the thousands of signers already are Governor Mike Huckabee, author, columnist, and speaker Janice Shaw Krauss, Stephen Mosier of the Population Research Institute, Father Sheenan Mulcahy of Human Life International, and leaders from Poland, Germany, Nigeria, and other African nations, Australia, Venezuela, England, the Republic of Georgia, and many others. Quote, people around the world are very concerned about U.S. foreign policy, Dr. Moore said. We have a unique opportunity to help the U.S. champion family rights internationally. To sign this important letter to the president, visit the link below. The Ruth Institute is a global interfaith coalition to defend the family and build a civilization of love. Dr. Morris's latest book is The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and How the Church Was Right All Along. This week, we bring in an expert who will help you defend the truth about marriage and family and human sexuality. And now for Dr. J's featured interview with our special guest, Alan Abel. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse. Welcome to the Dr. J Show. My guest today is Alan Abair. He's the co-executive director of Your Holy Family Ministries. Alan Abair is an information technology professional who has worked in sales engineering for the past 15 years at various networking and cybersecurity companies. He's been married to his wife, Danae, for over 28 years. They have been blessed with nine children. He volunteers his time and talent in varying capacities within the Catholic Church. He attended Catholic schools from kindergarten through college. He was a member of the Speakers Bureau for the Office of Pro-Life Activities in the Diocese of Austin. He gives talks for both RCIA and the Jesus is Lord Adult Faith Formation Programs at St. William Catholic Church in Round Rock, Texas. He's a former board member of the Central Texas Fellowship of Catholic Men and the Alexander House Apostolate. In 2013, Alan and his wife, Danae, founded Your Holy Family Ministries. Alan is an author and has published two books, 33-Day Family Consecration, and Abuse of Trust, which is the main thing we'll be talking about today. He regularly publishes articles on God's plan for family life at his website, yourholyfamily.org. Alan, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Glad to be here. 
Well, that's great. That's great. So um, the book that we want to talk about today is this book called Abuse of Trust, uh, which I have read and I have um, um, talked about, <laughs> been talking about online and reviewed and so on and so forth. Um, why did you write Abuse of Trust and how did you assemble this uh, diverse group of contributors to it? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I would say uh, it was led by the Holy Spirit. Um, and Cardinal McCarrick, <laughs> formerly what? Cardinal McCarrick, what? because, uh, you know, for the longest time, uh, this secret that I had was something that I could kind of keep to myself, that my wife and I could talk about uh, together when we chose to talk about it, but we didn't have to. We could avoid the issue altogether because it wasn't something that our group of Catholic friends were very concerned about. Uh, yeah, and you, know what? It, it, and you know what? It's icky. It's icky. No one wants to talk about it or deal with it. Nobody this. wants to talk about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I yeah. sympathize. Yeah. Uh, Carry on. Last time, what's that? <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> so the last time that we had to really talk about it or confront this evil that had happened in my life was back in 2002. Um, it was shortly before that that I actually came to understand that, that I was a victim of abuse. But we'll talk about that later. But, uh, you know, for what, some 2002 to 2018, didn't really have to think about it. It wasn't something that came up in conversation on a regular basis. It uh, was just sort of um, hanging out there and I didn't have to really deal with it. But in 2018, in the summer, when McCarrick's allegations came out and then the Pennsylvania report, all of our friends were talking about it. And, and we're not just average Catholics. I mean, we live across the street from our parish. We have nine children. We're very active in the church. And so our community is a community that was very concerned about this issue. So when all that happened, I, uh, I said, well, I guess I should make use of the Adoration Chapel across the street, no more than a couple of hundred yards away. And I'd done that on a, a so-so basis. I mean, we moved here to be close to our parish so that we would have access to the sacraments and just to really become part of our parish community. But I hadn't really made use of the Adoration Chapel on a regular basis, not as much as I'd wanted to. So, so hold on, with, I want you to pause right here, Alan, right here, because not all of our listeners are Catholic. So tell them what you mean by the Adoration Chapel for those who oh, are not absolutely. Catholic. <laughs> So uh, within the Catholic Church, we believe uh, Jesus's words about uh, this is my body, this is my blood. Um, if you if you eat of my flesh and my blood, you will have eternal life. And so we honor that persistent presence of Christ in the Eucharist, which is is, is his body. At every Catholic Mass, we uh, um, consecrate the the bread and the wine. The wine is consumed, but there will be sometimes the sacred uh, body of Christ, the Eucharist that will be reserved. And in uh, more and more Catholic parishes, they have a chapel that uh, we can go and visit our Lord um, anytime that we want. In our parish, we have it 24 hours a day. So at, at, late at night, there'll be a code on there. And uh, uh, so, so I, I decided I was gonna go start visiting the Lord for consolation because uh, as you'll find with any abuse survivor, there are triggers that cause them angst. Uh, it might cause physical symptoms. It may just cause mental symptoms where you just are. I mean, I, I feel it right here in my jaw. So it's a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. When I get nervous, that's, that's where I feel my um, tension. And I don't always know where it comes from. 
So I started to feel some of those things, uh, just uh, general uneasiness and, and weariness from having to hear about this and think about what had happened to me. So I decided to go across the street to the Adoration Chapel and pray for about an hour a day. And I ended up doing it every day, almost every day for three months. And it was during that time of prayer that uh, God just said, well, there are a lot of people out there who are hurting just like you. And uh, I I likened it to uh, having handcuffs, right? You're in bondage. You're in this this, this, um, uh, oppression. You're in jail of sorts by what happened to you as a child. And I said, man, uh, I think God's calling me to go and loosen those bonds. And I knew of one other uh, victim. Um, I was friends with him. He was the guy who was traveling with the priest in Europe when I first met that priest. So I knew there was at least one other guy who had been abused. And and I was like, man, I, I really should get in touch with him because I wonder if he's received similar healing that I have. Uh, and and I ended up meeting with him. But that was that was really the the impetus was I knew there was at least one other person and the priest had told me about other young men that he had a similar arrangement with. So I knew there were others out there and I felt very compelled to go and and extend that same healing to them or at least talk to them. So I ended up meeting this other guy uh, over a coffee um, in, in the Houston area. He came in from the city he lives in, which is not Houston. Um, and we visited for about three hours. There wasn't a whole lot more than just he knew that there was somebody else out there that experienced the same thing. And with him, it was a very uniquely the exact same thing. As it turned out, yes. Yeah. priest. So, so, so let me, let me ask you, let's, let me pause you right there and, and ask if, if you wouldn't, if you don't mind, because uh, you've already written about it, could you just say briefly what happened to you, how old you were? how long it went on, that kind of thing, just however much you want to sure. speak out loud at this point. Yeah, so obviously I have a whole chapter in, in my right. book uh, right. about yeah. what happened to me. Uh, so I was about, I guess, 11, almost 12 years old, and my family went on a, a trip to Europe. It was our first time to go on a big trip like that. And uh, while we were in Austria, we stayed at a uh, it was kind of like a bed and breakfast of sorts. It was not a big chain hotel, but just kind of a, a hotel nestled in the mountains. And there was a uh, uh, a young man out on the field, and my brother and I were looking for something to do because sometimes traveling with your parents, you, you try to figure out how you can go have fun. So we found this this young man out there. He spoke English, and we ended up playing games with him, I guess. And it turns out he was traveling with... Uh, an older man and his brother and his sister and brother-in-law. Um, and that, that older man turned out to be a priest from Texas. And he recognized our, our accent as being somebody from the States and probably from Texas. And uh, in my book, I have a picture of, of, uh, of us sitting at a dinner table first night of when we met them, we had dinner with them. And my parents, you know, worked out with him that when we got back to Texas, we would, um, continue this relationship and get to know him better. There's just something about traveling when you meet somebody from home that you just sort of strike up friendships. It's kind of a, an odd thing. In this case, uh, you know, he was a priest and and we continued that uh, uh, relationship. And he invited me to come up to Bremont, Texas uh, at St. Mary's and uh, spend the weekend with him. 
And I think probably in the beginning, it was fairly innocent. We just so went you up were like there. 12, you were like 11 or 12 at that point? 11 or 12. My, my birthday's in the summer. So it was right around that time where I was turning from 11 to 12. I remember being in seventh grade because that's when I received my confirmation. And that priest is my confirmation sponsor. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. So what, what year was this? What calendar year are we talking about? The 70s? Uh, it would have been 1981. 1981 is when you met this priest and yes. this all began. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, I actually, uh, you know, a lot of uh, abuse victims, they don't remember certain parts of their abuse. Right. And I never thought that I was in that case because I remember kind of everything that, that happened, or the general reasoning of, of, you know, he said, well, you know, we're going to be going to Europe a lot of times in the hotels and at my sister's house, there's only one bed. So we're going to have to share a bed and, and I don't wear any clothes. So you're not going to be able to wear any clothes because it would be weird. <laughs> and that was the logic that somehow worked on a 12 year old boy. Right. Right. And he said, Hey, you know, but don't tell your parents about right. this. They're all prudes and they don't, you know, there's just, they wouldn't understand, but I'm a priest. And so don't worry about it. So I remember that, but I really don't remember exactly how he got me to do that in Bremont, Texas at St. Mary's Rectory. I don't remember that. I don't remember the room. So there's, there's, and my therapist said, well, you know, if you want, we could go try to figure that out, but you don't feel like you have to because your, your mind might be protecting you from something that you need to be protected from. And that's how a lot of survivors, especially some of the others in my book, uh, they just started having these weird symptoms. Mm-hmm. They couldn't explain why they felt certain ways. Some of those physiological symptoms that I talked about, about, you know, jaw, pain, you know, stress and, and, uh, or, or just an aversion to going into a Catholic church. Lots of things that we just kind of take for granted that when you run into a priest, you, you don't feel a sense of fear or, or loathing, but for some victims before they realized what had happened to them, that's what they did. That's what they felt. Right, right. So for me, it started then. It lasted for about two years. I went to Europe with him once. And uh, by the grace of God, um, I decided to, to end the physical aspects of that relationship. And I say, you know, I'm just not comfortable with this homosexual aspect of it. I started to, as I matured, realize because I've never been attracted to, to men. Right. It's never been something in my psyche. Uh, I, I got married. I have nine kids. Uh, I'm happily married. <laughs> Um, but I, I stopped it, which was an interesting twist to me. And as I looked back on the abuse, I, I was like, well, it must've really been a grace because had I never regained some control in that relationship, I might've been far more wounded and have a lot more issues to deal with. Right. So again, about two years, uh, I still kept the relationship up with him. Uh, still considered him a friend, wanted to invite him to my wedding when he got reassigned and moved back to Europe. In 1988, he called me to tell me what had happened, that he was leaving the next day. I wasn't going to be able to see him or anything. And, you know, I was like, oh, well, that's that's awful. You know, the, the bishop said you could be on the tribunal or you could go back home. That's what he told me. Um, and I never really thought anything of it at that time. It was many years later, uh, when I was late 20s, that uh, a friend of mine uh at, at a party, because we used to hold these nights where we'd watch videos by a Catholic priest, and he had a whole series of catechism videos. 
And uh, we invited people over and we'd watch them. And then afterwards we'd visit with people. Well, this guy, we were visiting about our Catholic upbringing. And I said, oh yeah, I used to go to uh, Europe with a priest. And he's like, oh, well, good thing it wasn't one of those priests. And that's when the light bulb went off in my head. And I'm like, oh my gosh. It was one of those priests. It was one of those priests. Yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, it was so many years. So once I realized that I had to kind of figure out now, now what, now what right. do I do with this information? Right. Because that wasn't normal. Right. But for so long, I had been protected. I, my mind had protected me from realizing exactly what had happened to me and how perverse it was. Right. Now in, in your book, one of the interesting things that struck me is that this uh, experience that you had from the ages of like 12 to 14 or something, turned out to have, or perhaps it was the relationship or the experience, I'm not exactly sure what, but it turned out to affect your married life. And you and Danae had things that you had to deal with. Tell us a, a little bit about that, if, if you would. Was it, the, was it the instruction that this priest was giving you, the it's a no big deal kind of attitude that he was inculcating, or, or the abuse itself? or what, It was what? just the fact that I was a victim of abuse. I mean, yeah. as you said, this is not a pleasant topic. It's right. not something that uh, you would normally share in pleasant conversation. Right. <laughs> and I just going to go, hi, I'm Alan. I'm an abuse victim. I don't want to be known like that, right? right. Nobody right. does, right? right? It's not a, I mean, even though, you know, I've come to realize that it wasn't my fault. Right. Um, I mean, it was through therapy that when I first went after Bishop uh, Amon told me that, hey, you really should go to counseling. And I actually did it that uh, I realized that I treated that abuse like a rape victim does. I blame myself. Oh. She asked me, uh, the counselor, she said, so uh, have you ever told your parents? I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and she said, well, if you told them, what do you think? Do you think they would be mad? And I'm like, yes, yes, they would be very mad. She said, who would they be mad at? And I said, they'd be mad at me without skipping a beat. Yes. I said that. And that's when I, I realized why I was in counseling. Right. Because that's not healthy. Right. right. So as um, and it's probably not true. It's probably not true. Your not parents true. would have, they would have been true. mad at the priest. They wouldn't have been mad at you. I mean, I, I will never know yeah. um, because my mother's deceased. I never told her uh, my father is, is not mentally competent anymore. I, I told him regardless of his mental state, I got two very deep breaths mm -hmm. out of him. And then he talked to me more than he's talked to me in a long time just because He's not very communicative in his in his illness, right? Um, and that was enough. Right. That was enough. You know. Right. But um, how did it? But affect... I'll never know for sure. No, that's right. But how did it affect your marriage? That's I think because yeah. I think this is going to be, you know, there are, as you say, there are a lot of people in your situation, and people don't realize how this thing kind of spreads out and doesn't just affect the immediate victim in the immediate moment. Right. So uh, most um, victims of abuse don't have solid relationships, right? right. They'll, they'll go from one to another and it's, it's, uh, it's very, very common. Right. Um, so for, for my wife and I, we've been married 28 years. And, and again, for the longest time, we didn't really deal with it. It was on a marriage encounter that I decided to tell her. And actually it was closely after that, uh, that friend of ours opened my eyes, right. By, by making that comment. And so I probably told her within the year we went on a, a marriage encounter and, and, uh, I told her about it, and then I didn't think anything else needed to be done. Um, it wasn't until I uh, shared at a, uh, a men's retreat 
kind of like a Crucio. It was called Christ Jesus Parish. And, and I, uh, as part of that process of putting on a retreat, <laughs> each man is called to share a little something about their lives. And I had plenty of stuff I could have shared about my lives of things that I had done wrong that had shaped me over the years. Um, but I was in prayer and God said, uh, you know, I want you to share about your abuse. And I went, oh, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> Any, anything but that. I, I really don't want to do that. Right. And, and yet the second time I went for prayer, he said, no, no, no. I want you to share about that. He didn't tell me what to share. I don't think I could have really shared much. Right. I just said I was abused by a Catholic priest. And I, I can't remember me saying a whole lot more than that. There was no introspection of, oh, and it affected me in this way. It wasn't any big words of wisdom. I just shared it with my 22 brothers on this retreat preparation team. And so I get home, my wife, you know, which is pretty typical, says, so how'd it go tonight? I'm like, oh, well, well. And then the sharing went well. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah it was good. Uh, what'd you share about? <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. And, and at that point, uh, we, we started three weeks of very intense discussions. My wife never wanted anyone to know what had happened to me. Oh, 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 oh. she felt like that was an invasion of the family privacy somehow. That... Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, okay. And as we, as we talked about it, I'm, I'm fairly certain she, she includes this in her, her chapter because I, I somehow convinced her to write a chapter for this book. Which, which was not easy for her. And yet I think it, it will, at one day, it will prove to be very fruitful for our, our marriage. Um, I don't know that that day's today. <laughs> because again, it's, it's not something that anyone really wants to share. Right. About something that personal and, and yeah, it's, it's just ugly, right? I mean, the opening quote in my book, uh, it's, it's something I read in the Liturgy of the Hours, which is the, the, the prayer book that Catholic, Catholic priests and clergy use, and the laity can use it as well. But it's, it's prayers for each, each day, morning, noon, and night. It's, it's very beautiful. And I was reading through that um, during that three-month period of, <laughs> of prayer. And, and it, it was, it was a, something that, that God was saying. He looked on his people and saw their sin and was filled with horror. And I'm like, yep. That's the way that God should look at something like this. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that all people of goodwill should look at something like this happening. And so I think my wife looks at this, rightly so, as something that fills her with horror. Yes. That ever yes. happened. So she uh, just had these emotions, which I've had as well, of what if somebody knew? How would they look at us? Mm -hmm. Would they treat us different? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think that was probably the, the main thing that she was uh, struggling with. Um, and it just really, it really caused us to have to talk about it a lot because I had right. already been to therapy. Right. And, and unfortunately, my wife had not um, at that time. And, and that's hard, right? If you're at different phases of healing from this, because the two become one, right, within a marriage, that, that's, that's the hope and, and the goal. And if the two are one, then when something happens to your spouse, you feel it too. Right. And, and it may be hard for you to work through those same feelings. Right. And the two, the two, 
the, the two really are one. It's not just that that's the goal. There's this, there's an ontological reality there. And so absolutely. And so here so here's the one. Here's here's the a bear one, and one half is running out here, and the other half's back here. Of course, it's gonna it's gonna feel lousy to both of you, right? Until you can kind of get a little bit back in into sync with it. So it's very right. brave of her. It's I really I, I I'm very grateful that she wrote about it. I mean, I just want to say that on tape, and hopefully at some point I'll talk with her and get acquainted with her too. But I mean, I, I think it's just, it's just so important for people to be aware of, you know, if you if this is part of your life, if this is part of your family dynamic, don't freak out about it, man. This is, you know, that this is it's not, it, it is going to feel horrible. There is a horror there that you have to excise, and it's joint. It's not just one party. It's not just the other party. So I I, I really. I'm grateful that you guys did that. Well, it's something I'm having to learn is just how how connected we are. Uh, I've always known that. I don't know that I always felt it or viewed it as such. And and uh, so one of Jim Jim Field, one of the other contributors, he said, "Man, I just it's got to be so hard for you." And I'm like, "Well, sure, it is." He said, "Well, you're married. I mean, it's really got to be hard for you." And I I don't know that I really fully understood that in the beginning of just mm-hmm. how hard it was because, you know, as a person, right, I have these boundaries. I have my own, uh, uh, you know, times when I get to the point where it's like, I need a break. <laughs> I need a break from this. But as a married couple, you really, and, and this is, this is a, something that I have to learn to do better, which is learn where are my wife's boundaries? Right. And how can I, how can I identify those before it gets to the point where we as this one couple need to stop. Right. And I'm not good at that. <laughs> I just admit it right now. I'm not good at it of, right. of being that in tune with where my wife's boundaries are so that we as a couple can say, yeah, we got to take a break. Now, during writing of the book, we would have had it done in May, <laughs> but we took a month break around sure. Easter yeah. because it, it was just going to be a week. And, and it was very obvious that we as a couple needed a break. And so it turned into a month. Yes. <laughs> And yes. that was okay. And I, I, she, she was feeling bad for the other contributors who were all writing and trying to get, get their stories in. And I said, they'll understand. Yes. Because every one of them has had to take similar breaks. Um, yeah. Yes. It's, you, it's been you know, I, I, want, I just want to put in a plug to uh, people who follow the Ruth Institute, which I hope is everyone watching this. But our last, um, we put on a summit every year, Summit for Survivors of the Sexual Revolution. And the most recent one that we did in April of 2019, our uh, award winner for Public Witness of the Year was Moira Grayland Pete. I don't know if you know Moira, uh, but she was abused by both of her parents. Um, she had parents who were homosexual activists and who thought it was great. And, you know, who had a, her, her father wrote a book about pedophilia, which one can still find on the Internet. Anyway, she talks about these symptoms that you're talking about, the, just the physical. Um, she, she, she actually said, you know, sometimes I get PS, PTSD symptoms. I really I can't walk. There's nothing wrong with me, but I just I just can't move. And sure enough, at the end of the evening, we had to physically help her out to her car when the evening was over because it just had that big of an impact on her. But anyway, that that tape, that video is available. You know, people want to see a, another person who's experienced it and all the different ramifications that you're talking about here, the phys- the physicality of it um, and and the long lasting 
nature of it. You know, it's 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 very typical what you're talking about. So could you tell us a little bit more about some of the other contributors to the book? Because I want let, let me hold up this book, everyone. You really need to get this book, everybody. Okay, pause for commercial. You can buy it from Alan. You can buy it from the Ruth Institute. But just buy the book because I get them from him. So it's all the same. <laughs> um, tell us a, a bit about the other contributors and what else people will find in this book, Alan. Yeah, so um, we have a, I'll just go through him. So Jim, Jim Field, um, he's a bit older than I am. And, and he lived out his, uh, most of his adult life as a homosexual man. And uh, he was abused by uh, three or four priests. I, I, I forget. <laughs> I know it was two priests in New Mexico and one back in Lafayette. He said it's almost like he had a sign on himself. Because when he would run into to priests, they would just know that wow. that he was somebody who would uh, who, who he, they, they could abuse, wow. uh, and and he suppressed that memory for a long, long time. Wow. It wasn't until he was uh, probably in his late thirties or forties that uh, he started to have he started to come back to his faith out in California by the beauty of God, right or grace of God. He uh, I guess ran into either adoration. He was starting to do adoration. He was starting to go to um, some support groups at church and started to come back to his faith. And somebody told him, he said, you need to be careful about that Catholic stuff. I'm a little worried about you, that you're going to, you know, something bad is going to happen. And, and sure enough, he started to have these fears. He started to not be able to function in life. And it wasn't until he went to therapy that he uncovered why. I mean, he, he was there with his sister and um, at, at a church service, I guess it was benediction. And he sees a priest up there on the altar and a couple of altar boys. And he leans over to his sister and go, I hope somebody's watching those priests. Who's watching that priest? You know, he's got to make sure you don't abuse those boys. And this was before 2002. So this wasn't even on the radar. He said he hadn't read anything about uh, abusive priests or anything. And, and his sister's like, no, no, no. Father's a good man. He would never do that. And he had no idea why he, that thought even came into his mind. Mm-hmm. So he started going through therapy and started to recover those memories, trying to figure out, why do I feel this way? Right. Right. So that's Jim Field. Uh, the next one is so wait a minute, uh, just, if, if I can, If I can just pause there. You said he was abused uh, in New Mexico and then in Lafayette. That was Lafayette, Indiana, wasn't it? Lafayette, Indiana, yes. I'm yes, because we got problems in Lafayette, uh, Louisiana <laughs> also, but it's a different problem. <laughs> It is. It yeah, is. Different yes. problem. We're going to come definitely. to a Lafayette story in a few chapters, I think. So, so right. do do tell people about Jess McGuire. Yeah. So uh, Jess McGuire is from uh, the Boston area. Uh, mm-hmm. She lives in in Milford, Massachusetts now, and and her abuse started at a very young age. So Jim started at about age eight, as he would walk to daily mass, and 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 the priest just. I mean, he was the only one that went. His parents didn't even know he was going out of the house to go to daily mass, but he was attracted to the man on the cross. Wow. Right? So he was really attracted wow. to Yeah. Oh. So, so Jim oh. started at age eight. His memories were like Swiss cheese. Uh, it was a very interesting process for him to work with another person uh, on the team to help him get his story written down so that it made sense. Mm-hmm. Right? And that just is very typical of people that were abused at that young of an age. Right. Um, same with Jess McGuire. Um, her abuse started um, when she was four. Yes. Uh, her, pa- her, her grandmother was trying to help her uh, with some, some issues she was having because of an abusive father that she had that, 
when she was very, very young. And so they were trying to help her get out of that. And, and a, a deacon at, that, her, that her grandmother knew said, well, I think I can help her. And what it was, was the deacon actually helped her find priests that would then videotape, and this is actually not in the book, but it's something that 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 she's revealed to me and and thought yeah. about doing. This, but it was it was actually involved some videotaping of a number of young children um, being abused, so something like kitty porn. But the abuse continued on until she was thirteen, not just with that videotaping, but uh, more so with uh, with being abused directly by some number of priests and she right. honestly doesn't know the exact number just knows that it was it was more than three or so um and at age 13 she became pregnant and uh that's when the abuse stopped and a, a cardinal of the catholic church up in boston who's now deceased um was the one who actually procured that um procured, now it's interesting Wait, procured what procured the abortion yeah yes. procured the abortion yes. and blamed her for causing him to have to move to priest. Yes. She remembers that very clearly. Of all the distorted memories, the one thing she remembers clearly is that it was all her fault. Yeah. So, somehow it was all her fault. That message got through and she retained that. And, and they had some euphemism for why it wasn't really an abortion. Didn't they, didn't they tell her some song and dance about why it was really okay? I, I forget. Yeah, exactly. something about because the baby's going to be born and it's not an abortion. Because the baby was going to be delivered. Yeah. So from it, I mean, for a child. And they got a doctor to do this. The cardinal, the cardinal got a doctor to do this. And they buried the baby in the churchyard. Yes, yes. It's horrible. And, you know, Jess recovered those memories when she had her first child, or I guess her second child. She didn't yes. know that. Yes. When she had her oldest daughter, um, she was so fearful of having that daughter outside of her grasp. Yes. And, you know, it, it really had very detrimental effects on her marriage. And so, you know, she's, she's divorced from her, her first husband. Um, and had many failed relationships and still she till she started to deal with the root cause of all of that dysfunction in her life. Right. So, right. you know, it, as we re as we wrote these stories, right, I mean, I found these contributors because I put out a request on social media for anybody else who was still Catholic. Right. I thought I was the only one for so right. long and and ended up I, I got people that contacted me. Right. And I visited with them and we just kind of went down the path of, you know, let's see where this goes. You right. know, Jim, write something up for me. Jess, write me a little bit of your story. And and then we talked and and eventually got to the point where we had it in there. And as part of that writing process, you know, Jess was sharing with me a lot of stuff and some things didn't didn't make it in the book, like the videotaping aspect, because her chapter was already pretty long to begin with. And she said, there's so much. Right. And I just you'll find with the uh, abuse victims that they always worry that if I tell you something, it might be too scandalous. It might hurt you. They're very worried about how it's going to affect the other person. Very worried about that. So there are a lot of things that Jess chose to leave out because it was just too much, too right. much. Um, but she had, you know, the Cardinal's name in there and it's in the book. Um, you can go read it. The reason we had to make decisions, right? Are we going to include this or not? And, and I said, I think we should. Um, part of it was because there was another uh, victim who is not Catholic anymore. Um, 
And, and I won't even give any details around her abuse because somebody already did that. And it really scandalized her quite a bit. <laughs> I have a son coming in here. He's thinking about coming in. All right. Bye, Henry. <laughs> we, we can cut that part out. Um, all right. But uh, as she, uh, as we were writing her story, and this other person who, again, is not Catholic, can't even go into a church because her abuse happened before and after the Mass. And so she just can't go in. Oh. But Cardinal, Cardinal Law was part of that um, situation for her. And when, when Jess visited with this woman, um, she said, well, I'm not sure if I'm remembering it quite correctly, you know, of, of how the Cardinal talked to me. And, she, and the, the other lady said, oh, no, that's exactly who he was. He talked to me that way, and it, it really just scarred me for life. Wow. Wow. So I said, all right. So, Independent so confirmation. Independent confirmation. Had a lot, yeah, absolutely. Yes, had, yes. Had, he had a lot of bad uh, um, interactions with survivors of abuse. And if that story right there saying, here's what happened to me, and here's how horribly I was treated by a cardinal of the Catholic Church, because people might think it's only McCarrick. Mm -hmm. Right. And they might have guesses that maybe there's somebody else out there who's also right. bad, but maybe not that bad. Well, Cardinal Law did something worse than McCarrick. Right. Uh, you really can't say you can't compare one abuse to another, but right. it's pretty this bad. This is pretty it's bad. Pretty right. Pretty right. Bad. Right. And so we chose to include his name in there to hopefully loosen the bonds right. of other survivors Absolutely. in that area of no, the country. And that's right. the only reason. It, right. it, this book is not a hit piece. I didn't. I didn't, I didn't feel called to write something that was going to be sensational and be very political on the right or the left. It was, it was to loosen the bonds uh, that that every survivor has around them, and and just know that they're not alone. It wasn't their fault, and there are people out there who are willing to fight for them to be free. Yes, yes, and. The, the, one of the things that I so appreciate about your book is that you're not saying, I want to leave the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church needs to change its teaching. The Catholic Church is not true. That's not what this is about. The Catholic Church is true. It is the Bride of Christ. And the Bride of Christ has been sullied by unworthy people. And we need to clean the Bride of Christ. And that's what we're here to do. We're not here to say, you need to become more like the Episcopalians or something, you know, what, whatever it is that, you know, that people get all kinds of things into their minds. So that's one thing I really like about this book is that everybody in this book is still Catholic um, and, and, and loves the church. And we're trying to, to heal each other, but also trying to heal the church. And, and the truth is the only way we can only love in the truth. And so that, that's, that's part of what I, I really love about what about what you did here boy i got so many thoughts going through my mind i want you to go on you, to, because jess mcguire's story is unbelievable i want you to mention the patents some of some ruth institute listeners already know the patents and know something about their story say a little bit about them uh, and then i yeah, want to mention i think that uh, rodriguez right right well that that, that one month uh, hiatus my wife and i took extended the the book's writing and because of that i met the patents and I had, that was I had a divine appointment, Paul. Alan. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> this book's been guided by the Holy Spirit the whole time. Um, when I, I, I had really felt called to have a parents of an abuse survivor to yes. speak and share their experience yes. because 
I know that with my wife's story, it was something that most people don't think about of how it affects a spouse. And I don't think a lot of people know how it affects a family. And the Peyton story is not just about how it affects mom and dad. It's about how it affected their entire family and and the community. I mean, that's really what they brought to it is, you know, this happened in our community and our community needs healing because there's still people that believe the priest is innocent. Right. And they they try to sully the the, the Peyton's um, um, uh, family name, right? It, it's it's really sad. And um, I know when I talked to Scott uh, the first time, I uh, I just kept telling him, I said, Scott, this is amazing that your son would talk to you that quickly. Yes. I said, I never talked to my parents. I said yes. that right there says that your family has that unconditional love that every family needs to have. Um, and I don't even remember Scott saying a whole lot back to me. I was just like, I need to say this yes. because I can only imagine as a yes. father, how I would feel. Yes. And, and, uh, and hopefully those, those, those words gave him some consolation. Uh, you can read it in this chapter that that's one thing that he struggled with the whole time. Yes. Is, you know, how could I let this happen? I was in law enforcement and yet it still happened to my own son and I didn't see it. Let, let me give like these other de- let me give these other details about the Paytons. They live over an hour from me, basically an hour and a half from me, over in Lafayette, Louisiana, a very Catholic community. I mean, this is this is like one of the most Catholic places in America. I would say Lafayette is. I I think you know that too. Scott Payton is actually a deacon of the church. He's a deacon. His wife teaches Bible study, and the priest that Scott served with abused their fifteen-year-old son. That's the story, okay? And that how how gross is that? I mean, the, the the abuse of trust, the breach of trust that that represents. And this priest uh, confessed in open court, so there's no doubt of his guilt. So the community saying, "Oh, but Father Gidry, we love Father Gidry," you know, all of that stuff that's going on, and the way it's affecting the patrons, you know, the way the way people look at him in the supermarket, you know, this type of community experience it is it is really hard i would like you to say something about grooming uh alan something about the process by which the perpetrator um manipulates people um with words and gifts and different things like that to soften them up um and to and just kind of smooth the path for their abuse tell people absolutely yeah i mean uh you know, I've, I've been saying this a lot lately because there's still a lot of discussion out in social media about, uh, you know, um, how could this happen? Or, you know, in the case of Cardinal Pell, you know, he's innocent. I mean, a lot of people have opinions on these various cases of abuse, right? And there's a lot of them out there right now. I say that the uh, abuser grooms everyone, but he only abuses a few. And, and that's something very important to remember, uh, especially when you're um, looking at a priest, you know, it might be a friend of yours who's defending his brother priest um, initially, perhaps, or or even a bishop, you know, that's a, that you thought was a good man that's defending one of his priests and saying, well, there's no way this priest could have done that. They might honestly believe that. Um, uh, it It is, grooming is more than just leading up to abuse. It is facilitating abuse. Right. It is... Uh, yeah, I mean, with my parents, right? Uh, the priest would uh, come down and see us and visit with the entire family. Yeah, I mean, he he, he uh, actually, my mom and dad used to go on vacations with his sister and brother-in-law, right? I mean, our family knew this priest and his relatives. Right. You know, I'm, right. I'm reading the book of Tobit right now as part of a, a preparation. And 
And, you know, Tobit, he asked uh, the angel, you know, Raphael, who are your who are your grandparents and all this? And it's like, yeah, you know, that's how you gain credibility is that mm-hmm. well, I know this person, I know this person. And you talk to that person, they go, oh, yeah, this person's great. Right. And right. You see that all the time in these cases of abuse, whether it's abuse of, of the elderly you know, or abuse of an adult person, because I focused on abuse of children because that's what happened to me. And everybody can pretty much agree that that's wrong. And there are a few exceptions, but most people agree that's wrong. When you get into the adult side, and I know a few adults who have survived abuse as adults, it's no less devastating. Right. Because they trusted this counselor or this priest in confession or this priest in spiritual direction. And they used all of that information, all this vulnerability that person was sharing with them to take advantage of it. Right. And to get them to do things they would not normally do. And everybody in the community is like, oh, my gosh, well, who's at fault? Is it the priest or is it this person? You know who they're right. going to choose? They're going to choose the priest right. to believe. Right. Even though if that priest had a different title of counselor, they'd be removed from ever counseling again. Right. Uh, so grooming happens all the time. And uh, it's really, really hard for a community to heal from that. So just recently down in Houston, Texas, they had a, uh, uh, a youth, a youth director, um, that was, uh, lured in by a group of college students. I saw they got on, they got on grinder, right. Uh, the guy's name, I forget his name, Eric painter. Yeah. And, and Eric painter was, was, uh, soliciting for a 15 year old male. And he ended up, these guys lured him in. Um, got him at a Walmart, 14 minutes of pure agony to watch of the text messages to the guy getting in there and going just deer in the headlights look like, oh my gosh, we got fired. And the, and the real reason why I bring this one out is because it's a story of two different parishes, right? The parish St. Lawrence down in Sugarland with a, just a, a, a very good leader as a pastor, a guy who suffered a lot just physically. And, and yet he is an amazing leader. He got up in front of his life team community because that, that's what they have there at, at St. Lawrence. And and he didn't shy away from this. He knew there were children in there, so he didn't like go into the gory details. But but he led, he said, this happened. He was fired immediately. I don't think there's abuse here in this parish, but there could be. We have counselors after mass that you can go talk to if you're suffering. This whole community is going to suffer because of what this person did. So he called out that there was a perpetrator who had been soliciting for young men. Right. Could have been somebody at his own yeah. parish. Maybe he didn't do that. But he said, this person did something wrong. And he's been fired from, from here, and there's an investigation going on. He very clearly dispelled any infighting where somebody was going to go, oh, no, no, no. No way Eric could have done that. Right. Right? That right, was right. pretty convincing. <laughs> but he got up there and led. And right. he said, this happened. This was wrong. And, and as a community, we need to heal. So he didn't like leave there to be this two camps. Right. 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 So f- go to the other side of Houston, the Tomball, Texas, Prince of Peace. And you have a parish that has had their pastor, John Keller, removed for allegations, three different allegations. Right. And now their associates been removed because of an allegation against adults. All within six months. That parish is in denial. They have the camps. Right, right. Nobody has stepped in there to lead yet, and I'm still praying that they will, to come in and say, this happened. Father John Keller, he abused kids. We have three allegations. We know he did it. Right, right. 
Right. They're not willing to do that. They need someone to lead and say, here's what happened. I know it's going to be hard for you. If you need counseling, we have counselors available. Right. We need to treat these situations of abuse as the crises that they are. That's right. That's right. And you know, what's interesting about that, th those college kids, God love those college kids who lured this guy into this and got him on tape. They had yep. him on tape. So it was undeniable. That guy in Saginaw, there was a priest in Saginaw where nobody believed it. And the guy got off the first time. I don't know if you are aware of this. Case. Yeah, yeah, he I got do. off the first time because, oh, father, so-and-so. No, he would never have done that. But then they wired this kid, the 17-year-old went and yeah. wired, and then they had to believe it. Then they had to believe it. So, you know, uh, it, the, the, one of the hard things about all of this is in a certain way, our post-sexual revolution culture grooms everybody all the time because everybody's yeah. being softened up for uncommitted mm -hmm. sex and it's all been normalized and, oh, well, it's not so bad, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we, we, we create this kind of environment that is a lot harder right. to navigate, I think, you know, and to say, well, he did something unacceptable and, and we have standards of proof. You know, that's that's yeah. the thing that's really hard, Alan. And I'd, I'd like you to say just one word about this, which is the the the, the whole legal realm where you got to have proof. And then the community realm and the personal realm where you may you, you may not have proof that would stand up in the court of law, but you have moral certainty, you, you know, the certainty enough to act on. Um, but it's not, you know, you wouldn't want to put a guy in jail based on what you know, but you sure as heck want to fire him based on what you know, uh, you know, kind of, you know, kind of thing. So could you, could you, what are your thoughts about that? Because that vexes me quite a bit. You know, I, I, I like yeah. to be sure, doggone it. I like to be sure. And um, well, so, it bothers me. <clears throat> yeah. So I grew up in Houston. So the things that happened in the Houston Galveston diocese, you know, it's close to my house. I mean, we live three hours from Houston. And so I'm very interested in what happens down there. My, my brother and his wife have attended Prince of Peace out in, in uh, um, Tomball. And so that particular case to me um, is very telling, right? So you had this priest who was beloved by many. I mean, there are people in the chancery down in the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston, who credit their vocations to Father John Keller, right? So this was a guy who did some good, right? It just is. I mean, no, no abuser is pure evil. Right. <laughs> they may be unfit to serve and to lead and to be around children, but they're not pure evil. Right. So right. this guy had a positive effect on a lot of people. So he had, in a sense, groomed them to believe that, that he was a very good guy. He had spent 20 years at that parish and took it from a very rural parish nestled amongst all the pine trees to a sprawling campus in the midst of a very big city. Right. So he did some very good things. So a friend of mine, uh, my, my spiritual director for our ministry, he uh, he gave a um, uh, what was it a a, uh, a parish mission at Prince of Peace after Father John Keller had been removed. Uh, and just so you understand the the timeline, right? Father John Keller was accused. Um, they went up to the USCCB last uh, November, I guess. It was right about maybe it was earlier last year, but. Um, some reporter came up to him and said, have you removed all abusers? Is there anybody out there in, in the Dodge Diocese of Galveston, Houston? And Cardinal Donardo said, no, 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 there's nobody. And he brought up two names and he said, what about Father John Keller? And then he didn't mention some other priest name. And he said, oh, that's, that's unsubstantiated. And so that made national news. And so one of John Keller's victims immediately after that said, no, 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 it is true. I'm a victim too. So one person had already come forward and made the claim. They determined it wasn't credible. 
as soon as Carlo Leonardo made that public, <laughs> a second victim came forward. Right. Fast forward a little bit further. John Keller had been removed. My friend was up there preaching. I visited with him after uh, after his first night. And I mentioned about this. And I'm like, you know, you know, you're at a parish where there's been somebody that's been removed because of an allegation. And he said, oh, I know that parish is in denial. I was mm -hmm. visiting with the deacon and he completely believes John Keller on the moon. Wow. I'm like, wow, that's really sad. Wow. So a lot of people in that community believe that. But there's still people that have suffered abuse, maybe not at the hands of a priest, but at the hands of a, a family member or something. And every time they would hear this priest talked about, well, it would hurt. Right. Hurt them. Right. right. So, so a few months later, they had uh, this, you know, John Keller decided to retire, sail off into the sunset, just avoid the whole issue, which is probably going to work for him. And, and they installed the new administrator. And at that installation mass, they basically gave a, uh, a farewell to Father John Keller, and it was mm -hmm. glowing. Right. And somebody right. was there, and he came out, and there's, somehow it got you know, some news about how they praised the former pastor. And a third victim came out and said, mm -hmm. no, no, no. It happened to me, too. You guys got to cut this out. Right. Stop right. talking about this guy like he's innocent. Right. And uh, my friend who, who works with the Maria Grady Network, he, he said that, yeah, they knew about John Keller a long time ago, yeah. that it had made its rounds in kind of this subculture of people fighting for healing of abuse victims. So that to me is one of those examples of I got three people that have come forward independently, right? independently, right, to basically support <laughs> the other victims who who they're just feeling for and for themselves. They're like, why does right. this guy keep getting honored? Why does he keep getting away with it? Because there's a ton of people that are vouching for his sainty, saintliness, right? His right. holiness. Right. And it's not true. And we have to listen to that. If we, as a church, when we put out the name of a, uh, you know, an allegation, say this happened, here's roughly what the circumstances were, just so people can understand, right? Because a lot of people think, oh, you know, maybe he was unjustly, you know, wasn't, wasn't really that serious, you know? I don't know what a not serious abuse allegation is, but some people really believe that. They start to rationalize in their minds, well, I've known this guy. It couldn't have been that bad. Maybe he just, you know, hit a guy on the behind after football practice, right? You know, some people think that that qualifies, and it might in some cases, but people don't really understand. And so when you put that out there and you say, look, we're not sure if he's guilty. If you were abused or if you had anything happen to you, we're looking for information so that we can help us in our investigation. And those investigations probably shouldn't be done by the Catholic Church. Right. We're right. not investigators. Right. right? I'm not an investigator. Give That's me somebody right. from the FBI who knows how to investigate right. or somebody from police that, that has done investigations in this area. Right. They'll be able to get to the bottom of it, but you can't come out and say, well, this happened, you know, Father Keller has been uh, accused. Well, he's been a priest for 40 years and he's done this and this and this. And we're, you know, we think he's going to be exonerated. I mean, you can't do that. Right. It's right. So, you've got to let the, so you've got to let the, uh, you've got to let the investigation proceed. And, and it's see so what it, hard for an abuse victim to come forward. It takes everything they have to come out right. and say, this happened to me. Do and you, they're worn out after it. Yeah. Do you know, uh, we, you probably know the Ruth Institute did some very serious statistical analysis, including the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. Uh, Father Sullins went through and, and basically turned all that into data. And he found that the lag time between the time the abuse, abuse takes place and the time the report was over, the average was 28 years. 
the yeah. average. And and we know that people some people never come forward. That doesn't even include them in those numbers. Listen, Alan, we've got a we, we, we could talk all day. I could talk all day with you. This is really fascinating, and I'm sure our listeners are going to be very fascinated by it. I always like to give Ruth Institute followers something to do. So what would we let, let's give people something they can do by golly. First off, you need to buy this book. And how can they use it, Alan? Say something about who they should share it with and how they might use this book. All right. So a lot of people look at this book and they have a preconceived notion about what it is. And I've seen this from multiple people. They look at it and go, it's just stories of survivors. And there are some of those. And I'll tell you why I include them in a minute. But there's also practical advice on how to heal, how to walk with someone who has experienced abuse, whether it's by a priest or by a family member or by a relative or whatever. Um, And then at the end, we give practical advice on how the church, any church, any organization can better heal victims because there's such a focus on protection that we forget about healing. And we can't. We cannot forget about it. If we are a healing church, a healing organization, we're going to do better at protecting the vulnerable, right? And then the last chapter is, so say that your leaders don't do anything, right? Say, say they, uh, you know, your bishop who you think is going to eventually realize and get it, say they never do. What can you do as a Catholic or as a, right. a member of your church? And so we have a whole chapter called The Fortress of the Family because uh, I couldn't see that my wife and I were called to start this ministry to families and have this book not be related to that. And as I looked at what happened to me, I was saved by the teachings of the church, but actually by the teachings of church in action through my wife's family. Yes. It was a beautiful thing. The unconditional love, the, 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 the beauty of that family was more attractive than the lies I was sold from that priest. So that's what's in the book. So read the book. Put away your preconceived notions, thinking that all you're going to do is read about these horrible stories of what happened to the survivors. These stories are of hope and healing. Even the survivor stories, the five survivor stories, one's by a Catholic deacon in the Houston area. The most scary thing in his is he describes a little bit about his abuse and then the suitcase of pictures of young boys that his was added to. Right. That's pretty ugly. But then he goes about talking about God's love. And if you ever meet Deacon Bob, you will absolutely say, I have met somebody that loves the Lord and wants to love me. Right. Beautiful man. I, I've known him for a while. I had no idea this had happened to him. Right. But once he told me, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. So yeah. <clears throat> every one of these stories is not something that will just depress you. It might sicken you, but it will give you hope that if That's this right. person, if the love of God can save this person, the love of God can absolutely save me, right? And then those practical healing pieces will help you to realize how do I help somebody walk through this? Um, I actually included that many survivor stories because of the effect the survivor, my own survivor story had on my priest. When I shared with him and visited with him for an hour and a half, I just, I went up to him and said, hey, have you ever met a survivor of <laughs> abuse? And he's like, well... Not really. I mean, I, I met somebody who a priest had shown some porn to, but no. And he said, would you like to visit? And I'm like, okay, let's go visit. And for an hour and a half, we talked and he asked me questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and and his understanding of, of what I went through, and what my wife went through and is still going through um, changed him. Yes. I mean, it really did. Yes. Um, he, he's, I always liked him as a pastor. <laughs> 
I like him even more now. And, and I've seen the effect that's had on other survivors in our community who interact with him. Yes. The compassion he has knowing a survivor is incredible. So my hope is that through this book, that people in clergy will get to know a survivor. Mm-hmm. And that by knowing that survivor and maybe reading Dr. Deb Rodriguez's beautiful healing chapters, because oh. she's a survivor of abuse as well. Her stuff and they're awesome. Primo. They're yeah, awesome. She's primo. <laughs> yeah. And, and that by, by them getting to meet a survivor, that they will be more compassionate and extend the healing of Christ to the, to survivors that come to them because they have access to, you know, many more people than I do as as an individual. So read the book, find a priest who you think has the capacity or, you know, some minister in your own church that has the capacity for healing and they just might not have been given the tools. This book will help them. Uh, A priest uh, who reviewed the book said this should be read by every seminarian. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. And so I started to contact seminary directors to see what we can do, because I self-published this book for a few reasons. One is I didn't think anybody would actually want to publish it because it's not political. <laughs> and secondly, I get to do whatever I want with the exactly, book. Exactly, exactly. That's why PDFs, we publish our own stuff. Copies. That's right. Yeah. I'm happy to do that to anybody right. that, that wants to do this to determine whether or not they want to send this out. And and I bulk, bulk right. pricing, I got to cover my cost. But yes, I want to get it out there to change the culture, yes. to help loosen those bonds. Yes, and and I I would like to say in closing that the Ruth Institute is an interfaith coalition to defend the family and to restore sexual healing and sexual sanity. We defend the ancient Christian teachings about human sexuality, which are the common heritage of all the Christian, all branches of Christianity taught pretty much the same thing. And as a Catholic, I feel a particular responsibility to address this clergy sexual abuse crisis as straightforwardly and honestly and as faithful to the magisterium as possible because that's the only thing that's going to heal the church and the culture, the whole culture. The Me Too movement can't really process all the things that need to be processed because they're still kind of hanging on to some hope that we can have sex on our own terms and just make sure it's all consensual and everything will be okay. Honestly, I think that's a square circle. I don't think it can be done. It's only the teachings of the church. That is the only coherent and humane alternative to the tragic sexual culture that we see around us. And that's why I'm so grateful to you, Alan, for the work that you've done, because I think the more real the survivors are, the more steps we'll be able to take up all through the process of dealing with these uh, really terrible crimes that have happened. In our, in our society, throughout society. So, Alan Bear, thank you so very much for being a guest on The Dr. J Show. Thank you. You've been watching The Dr. J Show, featuring a personal interview with Alan Bear. Pastor and Christian broadcaster John MacArthur wrote, Sexual expression within a marriage is not an option or an extra. It is certainly not, as it has sometimes been considered, a necessary evil in which spiritual Christians engage only to procreate children. It is far more than a physical act. 
God created it to be the expression of an experience of love on the deepest human level and to be a beautiful and powerful bond between husband and wife. We at the Ruth Institute encourage you to read the groundbreaking book Alan A. Bear shared about in Dr. Morse's interview today. Abuse of Trust shares Alan's story along with the stories of many others and how they found hope and healing. It also features the wisdom and practical advice of experts designed to bring about restoration in survivors of abuse. For more about this important book, visit the link below. To purchase Abuse of Trust, pause this podcast and go to the Ruth Institute website at the link shown. For a Kindle ebook version of Abuse of Trust, visit Amazon.com and search for Abuse of Trust under Books. And finally, Here's Dr. Morse for a word of advice and encouragement. I think few people have really understood just how deep and insidious the sexual revolution really is. If you ever feel like you're being weighed down and you're being bombarded with propaganda, if you ever feel like there's just one more TV show, one more advertisement, one more study that was obviously produced by an advocacy group designed to make you believe all these things, you are correct. You are being barraged with propaganda because all of these things are untrue and they cannot stand up on their own. They have to be continually propped up and reinforced. You've been listening to The Dr. J Show, a production of the Ruth Institute. The Ruth Institute equips Christians to defend the family and build a civilization of love. Check out our website at ruthinstitute.org for helpful resources and support. Join us on Facebook. Our podcasts can also be found online at ruthinstitute.org. I'm Father Mark Hodges. Thank you for watching. While on harm, harm, and who described feeling like she was in a living, you campaigned on the promise to make America great. Your Secretary of State established a commission on un. Commission on unalienable rights, unalienable, unalienable, unalienable. A commission on unalienable <laughs> among the petitions presuppositions among the among the petitions pre <sighs> the United Nations and other international organizations often work at cross purposes. <clears throat> the fundamental right to life from conception. Therefore, author Kamel. Poland, Germany, 
Africa to sign this important Dr. Morris's latest family agreement. Wow.